So this is a recording for Elan, that someone has given me the opportunity to speak to you, which is interesting because you're in the other room right now, and you could probably figure out when this recording is made, but it's March 18th in 2021, so you're six, uh, and you'll soon be seven. So we've had a lot of time together. Um, because we've had so much time together, buddy, probably are like, oh, is he crying? Because he <laughs> he gets emotional um, a lot. And I do get emotional a lot. I think uh, in this moment to just kind of speak directly to you about us, about you being my son and me being your father. There are things that I hope you get and receive from me every day that we're together. I hope that you get, of course, that I love you completely, that your existence, your being here in my life, changed my life in some ways, saved my life, of course, defines my life and is the best part of my life. <laughs> it's so good that I know there's only one of you, but I wish I had seven of you. <laughs> because it has meant that much to me to have you. I am Darnell Moore, and this is Being Seen. An in-depth exploration of culture's role in resolving the tensions between how we are seen and how we see ourselves. Focused on the gay and queer Black male experience, Being Seen is a space to explore culture with leading artists, writers, activists, and entertainers. If we create nuanced and accurate cultural portrayals of identity and experience, we have an opportunity to reduce stigma and change perception, impacting everything from HIV to institutional inequity. Fathers, the fathers who we create and are created by. Born fathers, intentional fathers, community fathers, the fatherhood of Black, gay, and queer artists. Fathers, it is a vessel and a verb. It's a way for us to care for ourselves, to create our futures, and to empathize with our past. It is a space where we can radically redefine notions of masculinity, and we can break apart the pervasive and destructive myths of what it means to be Black, what it means to be a father. And we are still too rarely seen. Black, gay, and queer men who are already fathers are in the act of becoming. Mainstream entertainment has rendered us nearly invisible. And when Black fatherhood is portrayed, it is often so much less than what we know it to be. Like father... My father's embrace is tighter now that he knows he is not the only man in my life. He whispers, remember when, and I love you, as he holds my hand hungry for a discussion of Bible scriptures over breakfast. He pours cups of coffee I can't stop spilling. My father's embrace is firm and warm now that he knows 
He begs forgiveness for anything he may have done to make me turn to abomination as he watches my eggs scrambled soft. Yolk runs all over the plate. A rubber band binds the morning paper. My father's embrace tightens. Grits stiffen. I hug back like a little boy, gripping to prove his handshake. Daddy squeezes me close, but I cannot feel his heartbeat, and he cannot hear mine. There is too much flesh between us, two men in love. That was Like Father by Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Jericho Brown. More from him on the complex poetry of fatherhood. Um, And yet, I understand poetry the way I understand uh, microwaves, bread, and automobiles. When I read poems, they do something for me. I don't get to pinpoint what they do, but there's some way that they're enlarging my life. And I think one of the things that have happened for me since writing about my dad and writing about the fact of fatherhood, how difficult that fact must be, how hard it must be to be a father. One of the things that I have learned through that process is that old thing called empathy. Um, I just have a lot more patience. I gained a lot more patience for my dad uh, and for fathers, period, um, who often have this huge responsibility that they're in a position that they, they have to make it up as they go. The road to becoming a father connects us to those we were fathered by. How do we find empathy for our own fathers? And in what ways can we better understand their contexts? Tim and Calvin, fathers of Cyrus and Grady. I grew up in Brooklyn, like Bed-Stuy. And, you know, being honest, I come from an alcoholic father who was not really present. He was present bringing home the bacon, all respect given. And we were raised, I feel, the best way possible. But at the end of the day, when the nurturing came into to play, I, I didn't feel that from him. It was very, that's the woman's place. And that'll probably coincide with one of the other questions because it's like, you know, I grew up with, okay, this is your job and that's her job. And this is, and I don't do that. And, you know, and he, he was just very non-emotional. You know, he tried his best to talk about being a man. And, you know, for me, I feel that I come from, from even family members even stating, oh, you know, that's not a man's job. That's a woman's job. That's why you're called the mother. How can two men, you know, raise a family? That's unheard of. And and to add and and, and to conclude on my, it's like, like with my dad is specifically great provider. He was a great guy. I mean, I loved him. But when I grew up and I figured out and I figured out what kind of dad I wanted, I aspired to be, you know, I knew that there were different values at stake. That I mean, I was a totally different generation, you know, but, um, you know, he, great guy. It was just, he had his roles. She had her roles. And I had to figure out later on that it's not about roles. It's about you being you, being yourself, making sure that your children see not only yourself, but that they are proud of themselves. What does our own legacy and love look like? What do we hear in the words of our children? Grady, daughter of Tim and Calvin. I mean, I 
I would tell this to anybody, like, just don't worry about what other people think. Just be yourself. Because I feel like if you let other people get to you, you can't, like, be yourself or be confident. It's like you let yourself down. Basically, I guess, setting yourself up for failure. Like, just don't let it get to your head. Just do what you think is right. But if you, like, need help parenting, I would ask. But don't let someone, like, take over. And here's me interrogating my own relationship to being a father, how coming into ourselves could be a powerful first act of fatherhood. That is such a good question. When I was young, did I think about becoming a father? No, I don't No, I didn't have a lot of thoughts about becoming a father when I was young. And I'm not too sure why. I think I was overburdened by thoughts about what it meant to be a boy becoming a man. Like I was so, I mean, part of that was because of the uh, the societal pressures that was sort of placed on my back. But I don't know if fatherhood was something I was... Th- and the other thing too, I also <laughs> was in the house as a young person with a father who didn't demonstrate the best of, of of what it means to be a father. So in a lot of ways, I was trying not to become him. And that's probably why I was like, I don't want to be a father. Because my the, the father that I had access to wasn't the best at it. Now, as an adult, now I'm sitting here, you know, as a person who really believes that, I, as I grew up, I really started to believe that I, I actually had, I could be a good, like I kept thinking, I could be a really good father. I can help to shape a being in the world and provide them with the type of mothering, parenting, fathering, tutelage that's necessary for them to be a thriving, loving, hopefully, person in the, in the world. Children, as a way of imagining ourselves forward, how they help us to envision futures. Dennis Williams, father of Elon. I love now as somebody who himself is thinking about family and what that means for me. I have been talking, having so many conversations with folk about their paths to fatherhood. So you had a very particular path to fatherhood. Talk to us a bit about that path and why it resonated with you. And others, particularly, you know, potentially other folk who is listen, who might be listening to this as well. Uh, you know, this is the part where I cry, right? <laughs> listen, <It's>, we welcome <laughs> the tears. We welcome all the tears. Uh, yeah. So, so the story, and I'm, I'm going to try to move through it quickly in the interest of time and, and in my emotions. My best female friend, who unfortunately passed away of breast cancer the year that my son was born, she was a fantastic, radical Black feminist. And she was the person who helped push and nudge me in this direction when I, you know, questioned it for myself. So Pamela Bridgewater uh, is responsible for the family that I have uh, in that she encouraged me. And then she introduced me to uh, a Black lesbian, another Black lesbian, who offered to donate her eggs to me for the purpose of me being a father. And I want to be I'm going to pause here for a second and say that 
and I can say her name now because she's given me permission to, to disclose all of this, but Aisha came to me and said, I think that I see in you what Pam sees in you and this desire that you have to be a father and I want to help you do that. I'm not interested in being a parent, but I think this is something. And so like that act of selflessness on the part of these Black women in my life, I wish I could see that partnership happen more and more where we help each other get the things that we want in our lives. And so Aisha donated uh, her eggs to me and uh, yeah, uh, I'm, 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 you know, she, she did this, this amazing thing and she is a part of our lives. We see her on a regular basis. I mean, that was always part of the plan. I said, listen, I want, I want to do this, but I need to make sure that you're all, that you're in our lives forever. Because I know that my son's narrative, I know this child's narrative at the time, I knew that his narrative needed to be complete and whole. And for me, that meant not doing this with like, and, and everyone has a choice, but for me, it meant not doing it with like anonymous donors, et cetera. But, you know, that there was this woman who, uh, and I know your listeners can't see me, but this is also part of the stuff that we have to talk about in therapy, right? As we, you know, think about ways in which we have been harmed and damaged and, and what we've internalized. But, you know, here's a woman who was my skin complexion, which I've considered myself a darker skinned African-American man. And... You know, knowing what our child was going to look like. And I know people have all kinds of questions about, you know, the royal kid and what his skin color is. But the reality is that knowing that I was going to have a child who looked like me in a world that had told me that people like me were not beautiful. And I've been working my entire life on my own self-esteem and self-worth around some of those issues felt like you know, I finally have gotten to this place, right? I love everything about me, and now I will love everything about this kid. In fact, I love him more. <laughs> I think he he's like, this kid's gonna just, he's gonna do it, you know? When I run my fingers through my son's hair and I feel the texture of his hair, which is the texture of mine, when I see, you know, when we're talking, I'm talking to him about the importance of coconut butter <laughs> on his skin, I'm talking to myself, you know? And that's the beautiful thing. Oh, I have a perfect example. I, you know, when I think about it, this is so, this is going to be so, <laughs> it's probably ego, but I, I always say like, I can see my child sitting in a classroom in like second grade. <laughs> and the teacher's like talking about, well, hope, first of all, they wouldn't be in a school where the teacher's like going on and on about Thanksgiving. But if they were, I see my child as the one with that hand raised at the moment the teacher says something like, oh, we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving and we're going to make all of these pilgrim outfits and all this stuff. And my child being the one saying, no, we're not. Because we don't we don't glorify colonization in my house. <laughs> you know, I'm just, <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I'm just, oh, you know, like I, I want, I always imagine my child as somebody fully possessed of the freedom to not only have the capacity to think big, but the, and this is something that I learned from my partner, he always talks about, he wants children to be free. So let's start like by 
thinking about the moment you decided to become a father or the moment you realized you actually were a father, describe it in as much as detail as possible. What was that moment like for you? There are multiple moments, right? I think there's the, I, you know, sort of growing up thinking, am I ever going to be a father? And then like having the realization that I wanted it and that it was possible. So, you know, there's, as a, as a Black gay man, for me, and I'm at an age where I didn't see gay men being fathers in the way that I knew I was going to live my life. Like, I knew I was never going to marry a woman. I knew I was going to have a heterosexual relationship. And so I didn't know what fatherhood would even look like. So realizing that it was possible probably came long after the realization that I knew I wanted it. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, when I was in my early 20s, I said to uh, a friend of mine that, I didn't think I was ever going to be a father. And she took offense at that. And she was like, you know, it was one of the greatest compliments I've ever received. And she was like, you're exactly the kind of person that needs to raise kids. And I thought, wow. And I I find that to be true of so many of the men in my life, given like who we are, what we come from, the values that we have. I'm like, wow, we are the people that should be having kids. So I knew I wanted it. When I finally made the decision, I was in my late 30s and I had just come out of what I thought was going to be my forever relationship. <laughs> um, and I, and you know, when you have the security of that emotionally, you make plans for the future. And in that relationship, you know, we talked about starting a family. And because I had seen it, I knew the gay men could do that. I knew we could adopt and we could have foster kids. We could have be surrogates, you know, our, our work with surrogates. And then that relationship ended and I felt like with the end of that relationship, someone had taken something away from me. And I was like, no, I have to find a way to get this back. And so that was in my late thirties. And I started really aggressively investigating the possibility that I could do this by way of in vitro fertilization. And I was in a lot of therapy also, by the way, which I, I, I mean, I, you know, I think is really important in that I had a I had a fantastic therapist who was helping me process the end of that relationship. And he said something to me that was really important, which was I needed to grieve the loss of what I had in that relationship, but also grieve the loss of what I thought I was going to have. And when I, when he said that, I imagined the family and I was like, oh my gosh, that family is lost. And then he said, but how do you rebuild that back for yourself? And that began my journey, my real journey into fatherhood. Tell me about the moment you decided to become a father, or fathers, each of you individually, or the moment you realized, like, damn, I'm actually a father, Um, and describe it in as much as detail as you can. So let's, let's start with you, Calvin. I'm not sure there's a particular time that I decided to become a father. You know, it was always something that I would, I would love to be, but... There were very little examples um, of gay men and you know, having children when I was growing up. So it was um, unrealistic for even to think that would be possible. The moment I realized that I was a father, um, there was two of them, it was twofold. When our uh, now 16-year-old daughter, Grady, um, arrived as a foster child, because she was a foster child first, and she was six and a half months old, and we were in the doorway, and there was this big guy holding her, you know? <laughs> and we had to fill out all this paperwork, and it was, like, early in the morning, and we'd been, been waiting all night for her to come. Yeah. yeah, so we signed all the paperwork, and then 
he handed her off to us, you know, and then we closed the door and I looked over at Tim and I said, I think we're going to have to run off to uh, Canada. I can never give her up, you know? And um, he looked at me like I was like, I had lost my mind, you know? So that was one moment where I felt like a, a father, even though it was temporary and, you know, in the thought of uh, being a father was a foster parent, you know, and that wasn't, it wasn't something that was going to be long lasting. And then the second one was um, when we met our now 15 year old son, Cyrus, he was three weeks old and there was a private adoption. So there was no, you know, uh, is this going to happen? You know, what's, you know, what's, what are the next steps? So we went to Philadelphia. I remember the first time they put Cyrus in our arms. I was like, oh my gosh. I mean, this is like, when my, it was, my mind was blown, you know? It was really like my most realized dream ever. Still to this day, it was really like, wait, what the hell just happened? You know, um, there was no turning back then, you know? It was official. It's really nice. I guess, like, how they met and then how my brother and I came along. Because they said that they were together and then not even, like, a year later, they started uh, fostering and then they got me and, and then it's like a few months later Cyrus came along he was a private adoption but they didn't expect to like, have two kids like they just got me he was only three weeks old and I was six months it's like they always talk about how like, I had already like learned to sleep through the night it's like they didn't know what they were dealing with because he was only three weeks old it's just, it's interesting always to hear how they met and then how we came along. The destructive and pervasive myths of the Black father. As Black men, you've hinted at this, but it isn't where do you think we learn to be fathers? How are we taught? What are we socialized to believe about fatherhood, right? What lessons have come? that have come to you, for good or bad, that have shaped how you come to think about fatherhood? I think one of the things that have come to me quite recently really just has to do with um, understanding what people see when they see me and that that's going to be different in every mind. And now when I'm speaking of fatherhood, I guess I'm speaking of it in a more metaphorical way, but I am in a position where I become, and not just because I'm a teacher, not just because of my students, but I do become a kind of a father figure for people, whether I like it or not. And the question is whether or not I can, for me at least, whether or not I can be of service to that or if I want to run from that. You know, um, there are many things that people will see in you that are simply not there because they decide to see them. Do you know what I mean? But I know what it's like to be a young poet. I know in particular what it's like to be a young queer black poet and have a need for role models and have a need for role models who also accept you, you know, who also want to be around you. And because I understand that there's something about this moment in particular that is important to me. It's important to me that I be able to uh, fulfill that because I needed it so badly and I didn't always have it. And what were some of those pervasive myths that you were socialized to believe were true and maybe discovered were a lie when when you were coming up? What did people say and teach you about Black fatherhood? You know, it was complicated. 
I saw lots of men in my life who were great fathers. You know, my personal experience is that I was raised by mother, you know, had me a very early age herself and then had my sisters and then later met and married the man who raised me, who, you know, I refer to as my dad. And so I saw that, you know, I saw a man come into my life and ask me not to call him my stepfather. You know, he was like, I don't want to be considered a stepfather. So I had I had great example in my in my immediate life of someone who made a conscious decision to be my father, right? It wasn't an accident. And that made a huge difference in my life. But I also saw and heard that, and I think this is this is still pretty common today, this idea that Black men don't want to be fathers, right? That somehow we're always running away from the responsibility or not prepared for the responsibility. And I see that perpetuated over and over again in our culture. And, you know, that, that I think is really damaging, right? Because it says that if men don't want to be fathers and it automatically sends a message that kids aren't wanted by their fathers. And that sets up a feeling of inadequacy, loss, rejection that people carry for their entire lives. So I think first, you know, what I have focused on, and I'm fortunate enough to be able to do this, is the intentionality of Black men and their journey to parenthood, to being a father. And when you start looking for that, you see the most amazing people. You know, you see that father who's at the game. You see that father who is, and and when I say game, I mean his daughter's volleyball game, you know, not just his son's football game. Like I see those people in my life and that contradicts the messages that I had growing up that like black men don't want kids and they don't want anything to do with them. Duplex, Cento. My last love drove a burgundy car color of a rash, a symptom of sickness. We were the symptoms, the road, our sickness. None of our fights ended where they began. None of the beaten end where they begin. Any man in love can cause a messy corpse, but I didn't want to leave a messy corpse obliterated in some lilied field. Stench obliterating lilies of the field, the murderer, young and unreasonable. He was so young, so unreasonable, steadfast and awful, tall as my father. Steadfast and awful, my tall father was my first love. He drove a burgundy car. That was Duplex by Jericho Brown, Pulitzer Surprise-winning poet. And here he is on the fathers we have lost, the fathers we need, the fathers we won't forget. Yeah, I'm glad you're getting better. And I'm here, I'm here that I um think it's so much about mortality recently. I'm getting older and I'm thinking about my body, my spirit, though the bodies and spirits of people around me. So that's been on my heart and mind too. Do you feel like we had training for that? Sometimes I think that's about the fact that we're queer and the people who would have trained us for that were gone because they died literally, you know, in a in a pandemic, right? 
And then sometimes I think it's just because we're black men. <laughs> we don't tell anybody anything. And much of what I'm dealing with, a lot of what I deal with is just stuff that uncles and my father have dealt with. And nobody like thought to give me a warning. <laughs> you know what I mean? And there's no rule book for like getting older as a queer, as a queer person. You're just supposed to be good looking the whole time, you know. One of the things that I think it means, understanding that there was a a generation, I mean, just a lot of a lot of queer people and black queer people in particular lost. Uh, for me as a writer, it means number one, that I have to hold their work closer because I don't have access to them uh, in person. But it also meant that I couldn't find their work. <laughs> I mean, I was really lost. I mean, it's not like they were pop singers. So there's not, there wasn't a way that I could, and it's not like YouTube existed. So I couldn't, I couldn't know how to look. One of the wonderful things about being queer is that even if you don't want to tell anybody, you can sort of figure out <laughs> where stuff is, where opportunities for this and that are. But then that's not so easy when it comes to books. And it's not so easy when it comes to advice from people who ain't trying to make love to you. Do you know what I'm saying? And so one of the things, one of the things that I feel like we miss that maybe we're not even always aware that we miss is we miss there's a gap of lineage. We didn't get to see those people do their latter work. You know, Marlon T. Riggs won an Emmy Award when he was a very young. And I bet he was the first black person and maybe the only black, um, not the first black person, but the first black queer person and maybe the only black queer person for a very long time to have to have won it. You know, Marlon Riggs also staged the first kiss between two men that ever appeared on television. Do you know what I mean? Marlon Riggs did that. So when we lost Marlon Riggs, we lost being able to see what that work would have been like in his 60s or his 70s or his 50s. We lost the opportunity to see him mature and change, which means I started at a deficit. You should be able to begin. I mean, Black people, less now than before, we're always sort of, if we want to be any kind of artist, we're starting at a deficit because so many people just weren't allowed to do their work and because it's not as easy to get a hold of the work. So if I say, for instance, uh, this isn't about Essex Hemphill and this isn't about Marlon Riggs. If I just say the name Carolyn Rogers, the Black arts movement poet Carolyn Rogers, it's, it's, people don't know who Carolyn Rogers is. It's hard to get a Carolyn Rogers book. And if I wasn't so knee deep in poetry all the way, I wouldn't know what, who Carolyn Rogers was either. Do you understand what I'm saying? The access to that work just isn't there. And there's a way that we assume one another, you know this, um, Darnell, there's a way writers assume one another. There's a way that we are there for one another, whether we know each other closely or not. So that group of people were not there for me, you know? And it's not just me that they weren't there for. They weren't there for a whole bunch of folk at no fault of their own, you know? They aren't there, but we are. Here, as fathers stepping into the role for ourselves, for our communities, and for our children shaping futures with our love and breaking apart the myths of what it is to care and nurture another. We love our families however they are formed. We love our children however defined, and we deserve to be seen in these spaces as role models, as quintessential dads, and as a treasured resource 
for our communities. Okay, so much more I could say uh, as the years go by, but if you are ever in a place where you're listening to this recording, you know already how much I love you, uh, love you in ways that I didn't even know I could love. And I hope you pass that on to everyone that you come in contact with, but most importantly, I hope you give that love back to yourself. Being Seen is produced by Harley and & Company and Darnell Moore and created in partnership with Vive Healthcare. Theme music is provided by Moses Sumney.